This is Electric Shadow, and you, lucky, wonderful, delightful member of ESN, are listening to the work print cut of an upcoming episode featuring the stars of 2001, A Space Odyssey, Keir DeLay, and Gary Lockwood, who you may know better as Dave and Gary. This is pretty much, uh, content-wise, what is going to drop into the feed about a week from when I record this. Included are a very brief version of the sponsor drops, because I haven't had a chance to record those yet. The audio included here is going to cut from uh, the first chunk, which was recorded at Fan Expo Boston 2018, to a few months before that, uh, to a longer Q&A that I did with Kieran Gary before a screening of 2010, the year we make contact, back at Fan Expo Dallas in April of 2018. They cover not just 2001 and 2010 and working with Kubrick. You get a little bit of Gary talking about being in the original pilot for Star Trek, the original series. Uh, they are wonderful, witty conversationalists. If you see that they are on the guest list at a comp convention in your town, I urge you to go. So let's jump right in and spend a few minutes talking to the guys in Boston, and then we will jump back in time to my hometown of Dallas. Who's still, who's still alive? You know, Pardon? I... Yes, I, I feel remiss, guys. I mean, a 50th anniversary, we should have brought a cake or something. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that, uh, that's happened since uh, the last time I was on stage with you guys, this beautiful 70-millimeter restoration has been going around the country. Has anybody had, had the chance to see this thing in 70-millimeter? The yeah, best way. C- C- Christopher, Christopher Nolan was very responsible for this new print, you know. The, the well-known director, Christopher Nolan. Yeah. You, you were you were hanging out with this guy out in France, yeah. uh, I gather. What what was uh, what was the what was the what was the vibe like out there in Cannes on the, oh, on the film's fiftieth anniversary? It was amazing. The whole experience was amazing. It was, um, you know, after who, who expected this that fifty years later that this film would, uh, you know, I don't know how many of you know this, but when the film came out in world premiere in Washington and New York and L.A., two hundred and fifty people walked out of the New York premiere and got terrible reviews for the most part. So Few how, good ones. How many walked out of Cannes? Nobody? Everybody <laughs> stayed? Okay. All right, good. I'll tell you what was unique about Cannes. There were 250 photographers covering. It was a red carpet event. Every photographer was required and was wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> Can you believe that? Anyway. You know, I'd like to say something. I'm sure uh, you must know that one of the main questions that we've gotten throughout the years is what does the film mean? What is the ultimate meaning? Today you're going to finally find out. Of 2001. <laughs> well, my favorite answer to that, this is recent. I read this somewhere recently that Stanley Kubrick once said the following. How do you describe in words a Beethoven symphony? You can't. Why? Because every human being that listens to Beethoven's symphony has a different response because they're bringing a different persona to the experience. Well, he said 2001 is a visual symphony. Now think about this. If none of you had ever seen this film and you heard the Blue Danube, what would the first thing you'd think of? Vienna? A river? But if you've seen 2001, what's the first thing you think of? Space. Which one of those two people is correct? Both of them. So that's why I think Stanley's answer to what does this film mean was a good one. Now, one of the, one of the, the things that a lot of people uh, come up and say to you guys at the table is, this movie changed my life, changed the way that I saw movies, changed this, changed that, changed science fiction forever. All of these things are true. 
Uh, all correct answers. I, I wonder, going back to your own childhood, was there something like that for you? Was it maybe the first movie that you saw in a movie theater? Was it, uh, you know, seeing a, you know, a, a live show? Was, was there something like that for you that really captivated your imagination? There was a film that I saw when I was a kid that, in a sense, I like to call the 2001 of animation, and that was Fantasia. Anybody seen Fantasia? That's a kind of record-breaking film, a 2001 kind of experience? I ever saw a movie. I was quite young. I was sitting with my mother. I grew up out in the Redneck Sticks in California on a ranch. And, uh, but I, had, I was a painter as a kid. I was kind of an artist type. Well, I was an artist type. I won the National Poster Contest my senior year in high school for my art. But uh, I remember seeing a movie called The Red Shoes. <clears throat> Cure Delay grew up in New York where they talked about movies as kids and bookstores, but where I grew up, no one could even spell movies. <clears throat> and uh, thank you. So, <laughs> got to have a laugh if you want to get ahead. Oh no, got to have a gimmick. So anyway, um, I saw the Pressburgers, the Red Shoes, and it, it really affected me by the way it looked and the story and everything. <clears throat> and I had a reaction. Then the next time I had a reaction was I watched The Killing, a Stanley Kubrick, very low-budget movie about a racetrack robbery. And what I'm trying to say is if you're a painter or whatever, when you saw a Kubrick movie, <coughs> you realize after all the movies you'd seen, I used to ride a horse to the movie house and give an old guy five cents and he'd give my horse hay and I'd ride home on Saturday afternoon. So I really loved movies. And I came out of the killing, I was 16 years old, and I walked over in the kiosk, you know, in, a, in, a, in, the, um, in, the, in the area before you go in, and I looked at the poster, and here's the end of the story. I looked down, I saw Stanley, directed by Stanley Kubrick, and I, I didn't really know enough about movies to really know, but I, I kind of understood that directors were responsible for films. So. I'm now, some years later, playing football at UCLA. They have devil winds coming off the desert. Is tor I, I liked my free education, but I hate playing football because I was always, always hurt and everything. I couldn't wait for the damn season to be over. And uh, really. So anyway, but I was a star, so I enjoyed being the accolades. You know, everybody likes praise. So I got up, and I lived in Malibu. Uh, on the beach, I was the only football player who lived there, and I drove a Porsche. I was a little different than the other guys. And I got up that morning, and I got the LA Times, and I opened up the movie section. And it said, Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. Well, that was my first experience of Stanley's yeah. work. Well, it was my second. Paths of Glory. It's my yeah. favorite Kubrick film. I love Paths. I don't Have know you, why. Anyone ever seen it here? Paths of Glory with Kirk Douglas. I like this audience. They, they're extremely, they're extremely well read when it comes to movies. Well, it's just your anti-war sentiment. But I mean, I think Paths of Glory is a great film. But 2001, in, still, in, there's more wonderful thoughts and things to remember forever in that. You know, That's I, my opinion. I, I, I don't want to keep people waiting. I do want to eventually get to asking you guys something about Stanley, something about 2001. But, uh, Gary, uh, you know, we all know you as Gary Lockwood, the actor. Uh, but I think I and fellow Star Trek fans in the room also know you as Gary Mitchell. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I did, the, par I did the pilot that made Shatner and Nimoy rich. <laughs> 
you know, ha- having you on this stage, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to tell us a little bit about being on that set. Was this was this something that that there was even uh, a, a tiny hope that it was going to blow up into the success that it was, or was it just another pilot? Well, when I did the pilot of Star Trek, it was just a job. Roddenberry and I had spent a whole year together on a show called The Lieutenant, and um, he made the first pilot. He went to New York. It didn't sell. Now, this will sound boastful, but Roddenberry called me up, and he said, I've been given money to do a second pilot. And I said, well, yeah. I'm not going to do a pilot. He said, well, wait a minute. He said, I was told that if I got you and wrote something, I could get a deal. So the end of the story is he wrote Where No Man Has Gone Before, and I play this godlike character, you know. And uh, I did the show. I had these horrible eyes. It was a miserable experience, and I kind of kind of candidly kind of laughed at the whole idea. You have to remember, we're actors. We don't know. So <laughs> I'm in London in Sandy Lieberman's office getting my per diem. And uh, some English actors are there, and he didn't like Americans much, and Stanley Baker was his name, and he said, uh, it's a lot of money for a yank. And I said, well, yeah, but being a Brit, you guys don't have any money, so it's probably a lot of money to you. You know, it was a banter. And he said, would you like to throw some dice for that? And I said, sure. So we started throwing dice against a wall in Sandy Lieberman's office. And it was his there, agent. There, there was a little guy there, about this high, who had like the fast-talking thing going for him like that, New Yorker. And he, uh, he said, you guys mind if I get in the game with you? And he kind of got on my side. So we're playing against these two Brits. And, you know, pure luck, we wiped them out. We took all their money. And after he left Stanley Baker, he was pissed. And Sandy left because he was an American. And we, all three Americans, kind of go, yeah. And the little guy looked at me and he said, you're Gary Lockwood, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. He said, you know that show you made for Roddenberry? And I almost got embarrassed. I'm not putting you on. This is a true story. I said, yeah. Well, what? He said, it's sold. It's going on the air. So by the time I got back to living in America, it was already a hit and off the air. Into that. I'm sorry about the length of that story. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's the actual journey that you went through in 2001. You, you found yourself in another reality. Now for a literal other reality. We jump back to April 2018 uh, for the pre-show Q&A that I did with these two guys before a screening of 2010, which Gary was in. Gary was not. Gary definitely has some opinions about it. Uh, let's jump right in with them. So I, I guess to, to start off with, um, working with Stanley Kubrick, what was being on a set with him like uh, in the way that it differs from working with other directors? He was very much a singular talent. He certainly was. He... he um... Well, let me, in the, the short, the shortest way I can put it, that how is it working with Stanley Kubrick? It doesn't get better. He was that great. I mean, you were in, you knew you were in the presence of genius with this man. But he was wonderful with us. I mean, it wasn't like, I had just worked with a terrible, when I say terrible, I don't mean he made some bad films. There was a very famous director by the name of Otto Preminger. And um, I had, 
I mean, he, he was kind of known for being abusive. Oh, he was a bully. He's, he was, he's Gene Greenberg. He I mean, loved yeah. to humiliate his actors as much as possible, especially the younger actors. And I was, it was with Laurence Olivier. It was called Buddy Lake is Missing. And one day, I um, got a. I went home after shooting one day, and my wife said, "Call your agent." And I called my agent. He said, "Are you sitting down?" I said, "No. Why?" Is you've just been offered the lead in Stanley Kubrick's next film. I had no idea I was being considered. It's just totally out of the blue. Well, arriving in London nine months later or whatever it was and meeting Stanley Kubrick and then beginning to film, it was just, he was, he never raised his voice. He was easy to work with. He was open to suggestions. Not that, we, not that he would necessarily use our suggestions, but he was open to hearing them. He was, he was lovely to work with. It was fabulous. Gary, what was, uh, what was Stanley like working with you? Was it, was it much the same? Was there a, a different kind of relationship that he had with different actors? Well, yeah, I should speak into this. <laughs> it's the one thing you learn, to hit your marks and speak into the mic. Um, uh, Kira and I have been friends for many years. We're different people, as you may or may not know. I'm more of a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm a gambler, and uh, Kubrick was a big gambler, and so I had a different relationship with Stanley than Keir did. But nevertheless, as an actor uh, relationship with a director, I, I concur with everything Keir said. He was a gentleman. Yes, he was. He was the coolest guy, and it was the only time I ever worked for a director that I thought was smarter than I was because I was a smartass. <laughs> and I really did like the guy a great deal. I yeah. stayed friendly with him for many years after. And uh, I gambled with him and uh, had a lot of fun times with him. And uh, one day he said, how did you get like you are? And uh, this is after I wanted to book a bet that he was going to make between Muhammad Ali and Henry Cooper over the big famous heavyweight <laughs> fight. And I, I said, how much are you going to bet? He said, I'm thinking $500. We have to remember the English pound was 285 to one. So I said, so it's, uh, what are the odds in the fight? He said, eight to one. And you don't know this about me, but I grew up playing high stakes poker as a kid because I was a good player. And I, I did quite well in my life at that. I'm just bragging, but it's the way it was. And so I looked at Kubrick and I said, <laughs> it's eight to one. I, yeah, he said, why? He said, do you want to... I said, yeah, I want to book it. I, I, I want your $500. He said, well, that's that's $4,000. You've got that sitting around your flat in London. And I had been doing quite well gambling, which he knew about. And I said, I have about five or $6,000 sitting around there. I, I, I'd be happy to risk it against a sure thing like Muhammad Ali over Henry Cooper. So finally, he, he said, well, I'll think about it. So on the day of the fight, I asked him at work. I, we didn't talk about these in front of Keir and all the people. This was kind of between us. I said, well, let me ask you something. Have you decided to bet? And he said, I changed my mind. He said, well, what do you think is going to happen? I said, well, they'll get out there. <laughs> Muhammad Ali will carry him for three or four rounds and knock him out, and everybody will go on their way. And uh, maybe you remember, but Muhammad Ali came to the studio. It was in the commissary. Remember? No, I, I I don't remember actually. He's not I, a I don't he's not a gambler. Him. He's a good human being. <laughs> <laughs>
when you guys were getting ready to make 2001, Kubrick was coming off of Dr. Strangelove. That's right. And this was incredibly uh, critically acclaimed. There was a lot of popular enthusiasm behind it. It was, what is his next film going to be? When you were initially uh, put in front of the press, I mean, were, were they doing advanced press before while you were in production? Was that coming, you know, after production was over? I don't, I don't remember doing a lot of press during the making of the film. Certainly there was, uh, there were interviews that, after the film, after I was done filming, uh, I did do some press. Um, probably, especially around the time that the film was released. But, um, no, I don't remember. Did you, do you remember doing a lot of press stuff? I don't. Well, we, I live in California, Kira lives back east, and we took different routes for the uh, premiere in Washington, D.C. And I should have bet uh, Carol Summers. Are you here, Carol? Yeah, there she is. I told her that we premiered on, she said, April 6th. And I said, no, we didn't, because I'm a numbers guy. And uh, somebody, uh, when we're signing autograph today, sitting next to me, went on the internet, and I won. April 2nd was Washington, D.C., April 3rd, New York City, and April uh, 4 was L.A. And no one liked the film. And Arthur C. Clarke and Keir and I and Stanley's editor, Ray Lovejoy. So Arthur, we're sitting in first class in the old 707 on the way to LA. And uh, I'm here and Arthur's here and Kier is back here and Ray is behind me. And we're heading out to California for the final premiere. And um, I'm, I'm sort of pro-California because I'm a surfer and a cowboy and I grew up there and went to UCLA and all this. So I said, I turned to Arthur and I said, you know, Arthur, we're going to a place tonight where they make movies and we're going to really be received well because the rest of the country is behind times and they don't know what we did. And so Arthur looked at me and he said, well, you know, I just saw the film for the first time last night. And he said, I have to tell you, I am absolutely amazed how great the film was. And I knew at that time, Arthur was not a movie guy, you know? I mean, I really yep. knew that and I said, I said, let me ask you something, Lee. I, you were surprised it was brilliant? And he said, it almost brought tears to my eyes. He said, I, I couldn't even believe it. And I said, well, tonight we'll be in Hollywood and all the actors and people around the business, I know nobody likes Hollywood, everybody hates the place. I live in a state everyone loves to slam, I'm used to it. I remember at the intermission, I was married to, Stephanie Powers, remember? Yeah. And we're all sitting out, waiting to go back in at the intermission. And now one at a time, my actor pals, like Warren Beatty, I'd done a movie with him and all, and they were coming up and we're a little group, Kier and his former wife and me and Stephanie and a couple other pals of ours. And Warren Beatty was the first guy, he came up and he stuck his head in the huddle and he looked at me and he went, you're lucky. Because unknown to Keir, Warren campaigned heavily for your part. Yeah, I did yeah. know that. And, uh, He's still bitter about it, I'm sure. <laughs> no, Warren's, Warren's a very bright guy, trust me. I mean, I've known him for a long time. He's, you know, but maybe he is bitter, yeah. It's <laughs> a great well, part. I mean, if you were a guy that had a chance to be in 2001 and it didn't happen, I don't know. I, I'm so proud of it. That's it. You know, the...
the, the critical reception, the critical reception, the audience reception being so muted at the time, and now so many of us really honestly consider it the one of the great, if not the great film of all time. Thank you. Um, what, what was it like dealing with the press when you were getting that kind of reception initially? The, there had to be something of a, really? Well, it was, <clears throat> as you probably know, there was a very, it was very divided. 50% of the critics loved the film. There, were, there was some great, but there were some very well-known critics that hated it, absolutely hated it. A couple of times there were Newsweek's uh, film critic, and I don't remember who the other one, there were two that actually re-reviewed it some months later. Pauline Kael. Morally, no, she was, and saying I was wrong. Yeah. It was a great film. Pauline Kael hated it, and she was a very well-known critic. Well, one of the people who loved it was this scrappy up-and-comer guy named Roger from Chicago, yeah. Roger Ebert. Yeah, he did. You know, it was it was one of his one big... One of the big dickheads. Well, <laughs> but he did, lo- he did love the film. There's no question about yeah. it. And, um, Sorry, folks. But, but it was the people... Uh, I just read a... Uh, a, 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 a it was somebody was, was recounting that in the New York premiere alone, 250 people walked out. And it wasn't until, you know what happened, if some months later, then Kubrick and, and, and MGM, the people at MGM, were very depressed about the reaction, you know? Yet, suddenly, it got, a, it, the general public started to come and it started really grossing a lot of money after a while. And MGM realized that the younger generation was coming and seeing this film and that a lot of these young fellas, or young people, not fellas, um, had been smoking funny cigarettes. And, uh, I don't know anything about they, this. They, they, cha- yeah, okay. they changed the, um, the, 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 the poster for the film. The new poster said, 2001, the ultimate trip. And uh, that's when they realized that it was man, really going well. That, man, that's when... Cool, man, it really was. Hey, yo, Gary, that's when everybody knew it was really far out, man. <laughs> That was one of the greatest moments of my life when years later we're being honored for 2001 by the Writers Guild and I got to get up there and got revenge on all those people who said bad things about the movie because they were all out there and I'd say, how many of you saw 2001 originally? All these hands went up. How many of you are from New York and how many of you are from Chicago and how many of you, you know, do you know that no one liked the movie? It's a matter, and then, then I, I hit him with, did you ever know that Tom Hanks became an actor because he saw the film? Really? One day a guy said, you know, 2001's one of the top 10 movies ever made. And because I am a smart ass, I looked at him and I said, okay, man, you're on the line. Name the other nine. <laughs> oh, wait, wait a minute. If somebody says name the type nine better films in 2001, you're going to go uh, Citizen Kane. Yeah, you're going to do the old favorite, see? But I mean, it's hard to name nine better films in 2001 unless you just didn't like it. There were a lot of things about the production that changed during production. Kubrick was constantly reiterating and changing things, and uh, I mean, down to the voice of Hal. You you two didn't directly work with the the actor who ended up voicing Hal, did you? No, Stanley, well, at first, how many of you remember an actor, depending on your age, by the name of Marty Balsam, Martin Balsam? Uh, If you don't know him, he was in Psycho. He did many wonderful films, but he was in Psycho. He was the detective that was murdered on the stairway uh, by the weird uh, creature that uh, 
<laughs> Anthony Perkins came yeah, up Anthony with. Perkins was doing. Uh, then Stanley said, no, he's too New York. So then he hired a British actor by the name of Nigel Davenport, who was on the set with us doing the off-camera voice of Hal with us. He was a television he had the whole way of, you know, Hal was sort of talking this I'm way. I'm sorry, you know, Dave, I can't do that. Can't do that, no. no. So then, after the first week, he, he let him go, he paid him off, and he said, you know, I'm gonna worry about the voice that I use later on when I'm editing the film in post-production. Meanwhile, he turned to his first uh, assistant director, Nigel Crack, no, uh, no Derek. Derek Cracknell. Yeah. Derek Cracknell. And he said, Derek, you do the voice of Hal for the boys, right? This was the voice of Hal for the rest of the film, which was most of the film. Oh, no, I can't do that. No, Dave, no. It's all like this. It's a bit like doing it with Michael Caine. You know what I mean? You know, it's all like that. I'm sorry, Dave. I need more information. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was the voice of Hal. I can't that, blow the bloody doors off. That took acting. You know, that's pretty good and for the, the, the reality of it is, is that at, in post-production, Kubrick um, hired this extraordinary Canadian actor, Douglas Raines. Douglas Raines was the Laurence Olivier of Canada. He was known for doing all the great Shakespearean roles in, in Stratford, Connecticut, Stratford uh, in Ontario, very famous theater. Doing, he did Macbeth, he did Hamlet, he did King Lear. He, he was very well known for doing all these great roles. It's his voice. I have been told, I don't know if this is for sure whether this is true, it was a two-day gig. He worked for two days on the film, and apparently he's never seen it. From his point of view, it was just another gig. Yeah, but I'm telling you, doesn't he sort of let us know that he's a little bit uptight? Because I've, I've been around the business. I started out as a cowboy stuntman. I've seen the movie stars and people come, come and go. And, you know, when you come into this business, there's no guarantees about anything, but if you've done well and had a successful career, there's something in you that should be grateful. You know, grateful to the people who carved out the industry years ago, grateful to, you know, just the mere fact that you were successful, because most people come in our business, they don't make it. A very small percentage of people come in our business, make a living, and we were fortunate. And I have a friend who wrote a movie called Every Which Way But Loose, his name is Jeremy Kronzberg. Very close friend for many years. And Kronzberg one day said, you know something, Lockwood? We had great careers. We won the lottery. Yeah, it's true. I'll tell a funny story that might, I'm, it's, it's, it, this is not, well, it's a form of boasting, but I'll tell it anyway. Hey, you're an actor, it's your yeah. job. Uh, well, um, <laughs> um, there was a scene uh, that we had with Mission Control, in which uh, I described the fact that the computer, Hal, has indicated that there's a some part on the space on the ship that's going to not work properly, and that I have to go EVA and replace the the And we, you you see us testing this part. Well, um, it was very. There wasn't a lot of dialogue, as you all know, in the film. There was minimal dialogue throughout, particularly particularly in our part of the film, but the longest speech I ever had in the whole film was this communication with Mission Control. And the reason it was difficult to memorize, it was technological gobbledygook from my point of view. Very difficult to memorize. And you know, you don't memorize a whole script the way you do a play when you're doing a live play in, in the theater. Then you do, you memorize the whole script. But in film, you 
memorize it bit by bit as you're going along. Well, well sometimes you get a new page when you show up in the yeah, morning to do the scene. Yeah, it can change. But this one, I was, I went over it for for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was very difficult. Well, in editing the film, Stanley decided that the film that the scene was redundant. He didn't need it. it was too similar to another scene when Mission Control is talking to us. So it was cut. He cut it from the film, which I think was fine. But because of the way I memorize it, it, I will go to my grave. It's tattooed in my brain. It went like this. This is 52 years later. Mission Control, this is X-ray Delta 1. At 19020 onboard fault prediction center, and on 9000 computers showed Alpha Echo 35 unit as possible failure within 48 hours. Request check your in-ship system simulator. Also confirm your approval our plan to go EVA and replace Alpha Echo 35 unit prior to failure. Mission Control, this is X-ray Delta 1. Transmission concluded. That'll go to my grave. <laughs> <laughs> I had to show off a little bit. In a moment, we'll hear a bit more about 2010 and one of the most famous scenes in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, before we get to that, I wanted to thank you, the listener member who directly supports this show and makes it possible for me to bring stuff like this to you. Uh, I've got a whole lot of really cool stuff coming up uh, that don't tell anybody uh, include a pretty expansive series on Disney princesses and princes, a series on Doctor Who, uh, an interview with Kathleen Turner, a lot of really cool stuff. And you will be hearing bits of it before weeks from when it's going to actually post. Uh, we do rely on the support of our sponsors as well. Uh, so we want to make sure that you hear from our friends at Backblaze. If you're not already backing up your computer, it doesn't matter if you're on a Windows computer or a Mac. Go to backblaze.com slash ESN, start a free 15-day trial, and sign up for just $5 a month to make sure that they know that we sent you. This episode is also brought to you by the wonderful people at Fracture. Take those photos that are on the piece of glass in your pocket and put them on a piece of glass that hangs on your wall. Go to FractureMe.com slash podcast. Let them know that you heard about them from Electric Shadow. Save 10% off of your entire first order and start putting those memories on your walls. These ad reads are rougher than what you usually get, and hopefully that's a little bit of additional entertainment value for you, the most passionate, the greatest, the best people uh, I have ever met, uh, members of ESN. And finally, this episode is brought to you by the wonderful people at Text Expander. Text Expander is something that I use not just every day, but every hour of every day that I am typing literally anything on my computer. I use it for everything from email addresses to website addresses to my mailing address. Uh, go to textexpander.com slash podcast. Get 20% off of your first year. Save yourself hours and hours and hours of precious time in this, the one life that we have to live. Now, here to close things out, here are uh, Kier and Gary. And stick around at the end, and I'll give you a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff that won't be in the final version of this episode. And um, some more stuff that you can look forward to coming soon. My story with how I happened to be in 2010. Well, this uh, was this was. I mean, it was a number of years later. It was, what, it was uh, 16 uh, when years I did ago? it. It was uh, actually closer to 18 years closer later. 18, yeah. From the time that from the time I, you made 2001. From the time I made 2001 to the time 2010 was released was 18 years later. So, or when I made it. So I guess 17 would be about when we filmed 2010. And I was in Los Angeles. How many of you remember a series called Macmillan and Wife? Well, I was there guest starring in, in, ep in an episode, and I happened to get a, a copy of the Hollywood Reporter, which is a daily showbiz 
a publication comes out every day. And I saw that there was going to be a sequel to 2001 called 2010 Odyssey 2, I think it was called, right? Is that the, the correct title? It, it's gone under multiple titles. Multiple I, think, titles. I think in production they called it that, and yeah. then at the end of the day it was 2010, I hadn't the year we made contact. contacted at all by it, um, but I had a feeling that that was because 18 years later they would figure I was too old for the role, that I would have put 18 years on and they couldn't cast me because I was supposed to look the same, the character in 2010 was supposed to look exactly the same as in 2001. So I just called, and I was very lucky in those years, I always looked very young for my, for my age, it looked younger than I really was. In fact, when I did 2001, they had to add lines in the makeup because Stanley thought I was a little young for the role. I was actually 30, but uh, he felt I was looking too young. So I had a feeling the director wasn't thinking about me because I probably looked a lot, hell of a lot older. So I called directly. I didn't even do it through you my agent. Peter Himes. I called Peter Himes on the, I called MGM and explained to the secretary that I wanted to speak to him and who I was. And he got on the phone and I said, Peter, before, you, I don't know if you've cast the role, but if you haven't, before you make a decision, I think you and I should have lunch at the commissary, or have lunch. So he invited me to the commissary, we had lunch, and I had a firm offer to do the play, the film the next, the, the next day, and that's how I ended up in being 2000, in 2010. Well, no, even though now Gary... Now you get residuals for both. What? <laughs> now you get residuals for both. Now I get... <laughs> right. Now, what was, what was, what was uh, each of your first reactions when you heard that they were making 2010 in the first place? Yeah. I, I know that, you know, when, when a sequel to something is being made, the first reaction isn't always, oh, good. Oh, what great oh, no. news. How could, how could there be a sequel to this great film? Exactly. And I, I don't think I'd heard about it until I picked up this Hollywood Reporter. I think that was the first time that I knew anything about it, and, uh, and had a one, I mean, Helen Mirren, this great actress that we all think of, she was playing this Russian astronaut, and uh, John Lithgow was in it, and Bob Balaban, and uh, uh, Roy Scheider, Roy Scheider, so it had a wonderful cast, and I felt, well, I was very lucky to, be, to do yeah. it, I, I didn't, of course, my work was only with Roy Scheider in the film, it was really a cameo in many ways, but it was interesting about it is that I don't know how many of you know that Stanley, for whatever reasons, um, had most of everything that was created for 2001, uh, which was stored in North London, in Boreham Wood was the name of the town, um, where MGM Studios had a British version of their own studios there, destroyed. Everything was destroyed. So they had to research getting the materials to build my spacesuit again, the red spacesuit that it would photograph exactly like the original spacesuit. And it took a lot of effort. And the way they recreated the scene of that, of the Enterprise, the, the ship that was the ship that we were on, was the Enterprise, right? Yeah, uh, I don't know, I did Star Trek pilot, I can't. No, not the Enterprise. <laughs> what was the name of our ship? I yeah, it's because you're sitting next to Gary Mitchell. Anyway. You think, uh, you it's think it's amazing the what they read. I'm confused, I'm sorry. It, it is amazing what the they... Discovery, which the is Discovery, which is part of the, thank part you, of the reason that they named the well, ship I, the new I, Star I, I Trek series. I was going to say something, but I yeah. wasn't sure No, thank enough. you. Gary's like, I'm pretty sure that I was on the Enterprise. It will always be the Enterprise. But I mean, you know, Jay Bowman never has been wrong. But I thought it was extraordinary, their recreation. Of, the, of that part of the ship that where you see me uh, again in this in 2010. It, it really was a, a stunning amazing. kind of recreation. And they had they had to recreate it from every. 
They did giant blow-ups of frame by frame uh, from 2001 and recreated it all. It was amazing. Keir, do you remember today signing Hal? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I asked that man. It was a beautiful model of Hal. Yeah. I asked him where he got it. He said he was made, it's made by somebody. Cost three hundred and seventy-five dollars to make a, uh, you know, just a small Hal. But it was really nicely made. Yeah. Aluminum and the light, and it had a battery, a battery pack, nine volt. It could say things like "buzz off." <laughs> you know, whatever. Gary, when, when you found out that they were making a sequel to 2001, what, what was your initial reaction? Did you think that, well, you know, well, there could be something there? I mean... You, no, I mean, I... Were you no, character for, was killed off? No, I mean... I mean, you're, uh, yeah, you were killed off, it so was, there was it wasn't going to be another set of residuals for you. No, I just... Uh, you know, you really want to know the truth? or shall Yeah, I, I want to know the truth. These people want to know the truth. Yeah. <laughs> I, okay, my theory was... What a bad move for everybody... You can't redo something like 2001. You can't. It's not the same mentality. It's not every person. I, I, I've never been on a project in my life where every person was so handpicked as in 2001. Yeah. Every person in every department. I mean, the other day, I, I live out in Malibu, and I was just having a drink with some pals, and I told them I was going to Oklahoma to see you and do this show. Dallas. I mean, the Dallas. State. Sorry. <laughs> but we, How I California of you. Here, came here to do it. Anyway, <laughs> I, I asked him, I said something, and this guy looked at me, and he was, he was a brick, and he said, um, do you know that I worked on 2001? I said, really? He said, yeah. He was one of the, I was one of the, the slugs in the art department. Hmm. And I said, oh, really? He said, Oh, yeah, he said. I said, what was it like when you saw it? He said, God, he said it was so magnificent. That's the same reaction that the great Arthur C. Clarke had. I mean, you know, I know this is boastful, but there is, I always knew from the go, and he'll verify it's true. I knew the minute I got the job that it was going to be great. Because you have a great writer in Clark, you have a great director. And I have functioned in my biography, I talk a little bit about the industry, of course. And I say that great directors are not telling actors what to do. Great directors are photographers. Now, maybe you don't agree because you belong to some theater group here in the city or whatever. But I'm telling you, Kurosawa, David Lean, Stanley Kubrick, Ingemar Bergman, if you go down the greats, the truly great directors, they were all photographers. What I meant by that was, this is the image. Now I'll give you one thing that I know to be true because this came from Stanley's words. Stanley had made two films. He had made um, The Killing and uh, Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory. Now Paths of Glory is one of the greatest movies ever made. It's my favorite but, Kubrick film, as a matter of fact. Yeah. My personally is my favorite. And Kubrick absolutely film. one of Kirk Douglas's best performances. Absolutely. Yep. Well, that and like this is Van Gogh and two thousand and. Uh, it's not mine. It's I think it's a great film, but it's certainly not my favorite Kubrick film because I'm an artist type and I look more like you know. I mean, there's some good-looking stuff in it. The opening shot's eight and a half minutes long, but you know, I, I like. 
there are things I know about it in life, but I mean, it's not 2001. It's not, no, right. it's not Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove is so incredibly brilliant. It's beyond comprehension. Anyway, where in the hell was I with this? <laughs> I had some kind of rebuttal. Oh, famous great directors being one who are photographers. If you look at Kubrick's film, if you buy the Blu-ray, and you look at the nine or 10 films that he made, I don't know how many, if there's ever been anyone on this earth that has laid down that kind of visual creativity, you know, call me up and I, I'll give you a thousand dollars. This never happened. Also, I might just add the other thing with Stanley is that I don't remember him having to do a lot of direction. And I think the other thing that great directors do, and I'm not complimenting us, this just is a fact. Great directors cast greatly. Yeah. Mm. And if you cast greatly, you don't have to do a lot of directing. 90% of it's cast. Yeah, it's done just by the fact you cast it perfectly. Fellas, if you don't mind an addendum to that thought, keep in mind that when you make a movie, you've got the master scene, the close-ups, and the reaction. I'm talking to Kier, there's a shot of him reacting to me, a shot of me reacting to Kier, a shot of us reacting to the Cuban. You're the Cuban. Yeah, I'm a Cuban. He's a Cuban. Yeah. I am, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm having fun with him. He's a good guy. <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make is He's making callbacks to conversations that we had three hours ago that none of you were there for. No, I didn't insult him that much. No, not at all. <laughs> anyway, the movie business is it, such a wonderful thing when it works. I mean, there's nothing like it in the planet. I mean, okay, one day we're, I'm in Comic-Con signing autographs. And two young guys come up, and they see our flagship. You know, we, I, you, if you haven't been in front of us, we have an 11 by 14 that sells. Uh, it's rather dear, but it will go down, I think, way up there like a, a great work of it's art. It's the climactic scene when Hal is reading our lips. Right, and it's a magnificent piece of work. Anyway, <clears throat> people come up, and they look at it, and they, they, you know, some people look away, or, and I just, I say, well, what do you think? And I say, well, if you have the money, get that, because once, well, he will never die. I, I drink and do all kinds of bad things. I don't die much. This guy will probably live to be 100 years old. But the point that I'm trying to make is after he's dead, then all the 2001s will become immensely, uh, like Picasso dying, and the next Sunday, everything tripled. So. Hey, Gary, you know what I've just discovered? I didn't know this about, I, had, I didn't remember it, I should say, is that, uh, as I said, Stanley was very open. You could suggest things, didn't necessarily mean it would end up in the film, but he was open to it. I believe that it was your idea that you suggested to Stanley the thing about Hal reading our lips. No, wait a minute. Am I wrong about no, that? No, no, no. I'll, I'll just- An actor not because... taking credit for something that he's being given credit for. Well, wait a minute, a I'm about to really get boastful. Uh-oh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to really lay it on you. We were, the thing about Stanley is everybody was kind of in awe of him. But I'm a cowboy surfer kind of guy, and I'm not in awe of anybody in the earth. Maybe Mike Tyson. You know what I'm saying? Hey, Mike, what, where do you want me to sign? You know. But the thing I want to say about Kubrick is that he could be wrong too. And so we're doing a scene one day where Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick have been writing these little bits of information trying to create 
um, more paranoia on the part of Hal as regards our activities. And uh, so they come up with this kind of corny scene and I remember uh, we're sitting at the council and uh, Kira and I are doing this scene and I'm just really bummed. And I had never felt like that on the picture. And uh, so Kubik looked over at me and he said, oh, Lockwood, you don't seem like you're um, a bully itself today. And I don't know what possessed me, but I just said, you know, Stanley, I grew up in a little redneck cowboy town in California and Peggy Dolman, the milkman's daughter, was the best looking chick in school. And she had a calipigi on her that would stop her train. And she came down the thing handing out test papers and she got to me and I looked up and smartly asked, said, hi Peggy, how about a piece? And then I went like this. Yuck, yuck, that's what I think this scene reminds me of. And at that moment, I never forget, Derek Cracknell, Stanley turned. The, the assistant director. Yeah, Stanley just calmly turned to him, and here he'd been put down by an actor, or at least his activities had, but I just did it out of nowhere because I wanted to get it off my chest. And Cracknell, uh, he said, Derek, and he said, Yes, Cobb? That's a wrap. It's 11.30 on the most expensive movie ever made on the planet at that time. And we go to our room and we exercise. We stayed fit. We exercised. He came with Air Force exercises and we were eating fish and, Jesus, starving ourselves but to get, to get lean and mean for 70 mil. And I'm in my room shadow boxing and exercising my ass off. And Stanley, uh, Derek knocks on my door. He says, hey, mate. I said, yeah. He said, the guy wants to see in his room. I said, am I fired? Because he fired people, right? And I thought, well, I just talked myself out of the greatest movie I'll ever be in. So uh, such is life. So he said, don't know. So I shower up and walk in Stanley's room. And Stanley was so cool. I'll never forget he went. Uh, you're, you're Polish and German, and I said, yeah. He said, will it be schnapps, or what do you drink? You want a vodka? And I looked at him, and I said, well, candidly, I'm from California. I'll take a, I'll take a, in fact, I had one at the bar down here, our, our hotel the other night. I'll have a tequila, a good one, and a snifter, and man, he had it. He had a bar right there in his room. He pours me a snifter, and I said, hey, before we get into uh, the irksome qualities, am I fired? And he just went, no, I don't fire people who are doing a good job. He said, I have learned over the years that if an actor is conscientious like we were, and we had something to say, I, I've been taught to listen to him because actors have an instinct toward something because of their, they live the characters and they have their own things. And I'll tell you later what he came up with. But he said, I'm gonna have my driver take you back to London today. He's gonna stop and, and Golders Green. And I like Jewish deli food. And he said, I'm gonna give my guy some money and he's gonna get you some uh, white fish or bagels, lox, whatever you like to eat and go back to your place in London. And the next time I hear from you, Let's see what you come up with. Boom. Now, 
You don't know this side of me, but I'm up for a challenge in life. I've, I've been a smart kid all my life. So I go home, but we all solve problems differently. So I got a spiral notebook out, and I started writing everything down that we were supposed to get done in one scene. Time simulation, time delivery, the various things about the computer, various things about mission control, all kinds of tidbits of information, and they were trying to get them to you, the audience, to understand what the hell the thing was all about. And I said, if we could isolate it in one place and just play a scene between X and Y, Dave and, and, and Frank, we could get everything in, and then all we have to do is the computer gets the information. Now, I call him about 8.30, uh, 9 o'clock on um, the, day of, the day of the event, the day he said, see ya. He, am I boring you guys? Are you okay with it? Telling stories about Stanley Kubrick? No, keep going. Okay. So, well, I'm <laughs> rattling on here. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'll hurry up now. So I, I call him and I tell him my idea, and he, he totally freaks. And he was, he was not the kind of guy. He said, oh, my God, Lockwood, that's, you know, blah, 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 bitching. He said, I'll send Eddie for you right now. So he sends Eddie, his chauffeur and driver, to me. I go out there. His wife gets up, puts on some logs on the fire, and we improvise on those Euro 400s. A lot of the scene that you see in the pod, where we get in there and say all these different things. What do you think? I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, Hal can kiss my calipigia. You know, we, we do all that. Now, if you ever see the film again, notice that we get in there, and I believe you have the first line. What do you think? I can't remember. Yeah, I think, what do you think? And then my original line had been in the in the improv with Stanley as I took a line from Gone with the Wind and I said, well, frankly, Dave, I don't give a damn. <laughs> and later Stanley said, hey, that's funny. Then he cut it out. <laughs> you know, it was not part of the symbiotic whole. Well, the scene kept getting shorter and shorter because yeah. we, he would have us improvise yeah, on the scene all the time. and record our improvisations and then we get a new script which was shorter based on what he saw us do. Exactly. And then, we, then we'd improvise again and the scene got even shorter. Now the bull goes over the horns because that's called the Maletta sword and that kills a bull. You cut off his aorta valve, he dies and they give you a reward and haul a bull out and have hamburger. At that point... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's a metaphor. <laughs> so, well, we're having fun. But we're about the reading lips. That wasn't your... Wasn't yeah, that, no, here's what happened. Cut to the chase. Point, I'm about to, but I had to set it up. And I'm getting laughs, so I'm going to go with that. <laughs> anyway, so Kira and I are sitting there, and we're doing our maybe, you know, 800th improv or whatever, and we're discussing how in the hell is Hal going to go and... A guy named Victor Linden steps in. Remember, Stanley had that little trailer? Yeah. We're sitting inside this little trailer on the set of this huge movie with the big centrifuge and everything. We're in this little trailer, and Victor Linden comes in the room. He's like new meat, and he goes, well, why couldn't he just read your lips? Was that how that Yeah, and then in the final, now you see the movie, and if you see the movie, here's what happens mechanically. We get in there. We say rotate the pod. Now, you won't believe the, how brilliant this really is. We get in the pod and Hal's eye is in back of us. 
and we enter the pod this way because I had been in the pod when Stanley sent me down there to see if we could slide into the pod in a mellifluous manner and look like we'd done it a thousand times. So I went in there and I, I discovered that if we put a bar up here and we put our, a hold of it, we could walk our feet in and slide our, our butt over and look like we belonged there. So having seen the pod, I was aware of it so I could bring it up to Stanley to go in the pod. So that was part of my, you know, my good moment. <laughs> All right, at that point, we say rotate the pod. He rotates the pod around to the eye. And then we, or rather Kier, throws all the... I turn off all the switches. All the switches leading to whatever it is that Hal has to communicate with us. So he's disconnected in essence. And then we say, Kier says, rotate the pod. And then I think I say it after. Rotate the pod, Hal. What do you think? Well, you know, frankly, damn, I don't give a damn. You know, and then we were we launch into this brilliant scene, and I didn't know it was going to be the intermission break. So the first time I saw the movie, I just loved it because the intermission comes and there's that long lens going from lip to lip, maybe a 200 millimeter lens going back from Frank over to Dave, back from Frank, and the the audience just go, holy Christ. We're reading our lips. So they hear everything about disconnecting Hal, and as a result, he kills me and shuts him out. And it's, it's, it's genius. You don't see that every day in cinema. You certainly don't. Uh, 2001 is an incredibly unique experience. It's something that I would urge you, if you haven't seen it, when you see it for the first time, watch it with no distractions. Don't make it a second screen experience. Give it your full attention. Do that, and you're in for a much better experience than if you try to divide your attention from what's going on on screen. We have gotten so used to paying attention to 17 different things at once and having push notifications on and getting friend requests for things and requests to join games and Facebook groups and all kinds of garbage. 2001 is one of those visual journeys that maybe you don't love the movie to the point that you're revisiting it at least once a year, uh, like I do, like some other people do. But there is there's something to be taken from having had that experience. So make sure that you treat yourself to the right version of it the first time. It's now available in 4K Ultra HD from Warner Brothers, both on disc and on streaming. Uh, it is something that I urge you to watch on the biggest, most beautiful, best, most colorful and contrast-filled screen that you can find. If you can watch it for the first time in 70mm, go out and see it at a theater for, for the love of all that's holy. Um, this is the first work print kind of rough cut episode of Electric Shadow that I've thrown out here uh, exclusively for, for you members. So there will be rough edges sanded off and cleaned up. Uh, but uh, I can assure you, as I did at the beginning of the episode, in terms of the overall content of the episode, this is pretty much it. I actually cut this together from a total of four different interviews that I did with these two guys over the course of last year. Um, there are a lot of stories that they, they've gotten used to telling and in a certain order and that sort of a thing. And even though there might be little nuances, little things that are different from one recording to another, this is pretty much the substance of the juiciest, best, coolest, greatest stories uh, that came from those interviews. There's um, there, there may be one or two little things that I'll throw out there uh, that, that, that I may put into the final edit that I cut out. 
But if I do, I'm going to just throw that in as deleted uh, tape in the special features feed, which you, the glorious, wonderful, best people on the face of planet Earth, have access to because you're paying members. I mentioned a few things that I have coming up uh, that you're going to find out about first. Uh, and just keep this secret for me. Uh, here very, very soon, I have a completely brand new show that I'm doing with uh, a friend of mine who I won't name because somebody might, you know, just start tweeting cryptically about it and kind of give away this uh, this wonderful surprise that we have for people. Um, this this buddy of mine, a very a very well traveled veteran of the movie blogging world, the movie journalism world. Uh, we're doing a show about movies that didn't get made, but almost did, uh, for which at least a script exists. And the unique angle that we have on this is there's a documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune about Alejandro Jodorowsky's attempt to make a movie out of Dune. And that's great. And we could do a podcast that would be retreading ground like that. But what hasn't been said that that great, wonderful documentary has not already said? So we're looking at things where we have a unique angle, unique access to somebody and something that gives us perspective that isn't already out there and hasn't been trod to death. So, don't tell anyone, but our initial wave of a few episodes of that show, our pilot season as it were, is on Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness. And that is why over the Christmas holidays... My buddy and I went over to Bleak House in L.A. and talked to Guillermo for a couple hours. So we have uh, we have something that we have been working on for literally two and a half years, all told, that is launching with that. We've got some other stuff that we have been working on in the pipeline behind it, um, and it's going to be its own unique uh, thing. And uh, you are going to you're going to hear uh, at least the first episode of it before anybody else does. Now, the way that I have it in my head uh, to make this work uh, so that you can directly support that show as well is there will be a separate membership thing that you can sign up for for it with its own uh, sort of extra bonus feature type of stuff. We're still working on figuring out exactly what we can realistically promise that we won't then suddenly not be able to deliver on. We want to make sure that everything's realistic. Um, so it might just be a tip jar. It might just be a, if you want to just throw five bucks at that show, you can throw five bucks at that show. Um, and just in terms of accounting, it is uh, it is easier to set things up so that you can directly support this show, you can directly support that show, uh, provided I can bring Giant Size back, you can directly support Giant Size if you want to support Giant Size. Um, and then when, when there are multiple things to support, you can sign up for things that are like like bundle plans for supporting both of them uh, if, if you want to do that. But I rely on you to give me the feedback of what is the cleanest and makes the most sense. Uh, my email address is just Moises, M-O-I-S-E-S, at ESN.FM. So just send me an email. But again, nobody else knows about this new show. It is not public. Don't share it with anybody until you get the good word. And trust me, you will. You will be the first ones to hear. Thank you again. Uh, this is longer than these work print outros. Typically you'll be, um, but if you like this kind of behind-the-scenes sort of stuff, uh, there's uh, something I, I'm cooking up for the special features feed that I've already recorded one of that uh, that you will be getting within the week. Thanks for listening. Uh, there will be a newsletter to sign up for. I, I, I've been very, very, very busy, uh, and it is all thanks to you who are listening to this. So thank you. <laughs>